What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. The reality we live in can be a very strange place. Most of the time, fact being stranger than fiction. How will we ever start to understand this reality we live in unless we question everything? Join me and a guest as we unravel the mysteries of this reality, one topic at a time. This is Icarus Boreality with Shane Jones. What is up, inquirers, and welcome to the most open-minded talk show on the internet. For anyone who's been around a while, you understand the depth of my fascination with Sasquatch. Ever since I was a kid, watching every single piece of footage I could possibly find, for me at least, two pieces of footage stood out above all else, and that's the Patterson-Gimlin film and the Freeman film. In my eyes, undeniable proof of large ape-like creatures out in the deep woods of North America, and today... I had the honor of talking to the son of one of the most legendary Sasquatch researchers out there. And this one is definitely one for the books. But before we get into that, of course, if you guys don't mind taking an extra five seconds to leave a rating for the show on Spotify, I would definitely appreciate it. Or if you're so inclined as to take an extra 30 seconds to leave a review for the show on iTunes, then of course I will read it on the show and give you guys a shout out. And if you're not already following the show on social media, I highly recommend that you do. If you're interested in getting updates on anything interesting going on with the show or new episodes coming out, uh, the one that I'm the most active on, of course, is Instagram. But I do have a Facebook set up, but everything kind of just gets pushed off the Instagram. Uh, also, we're building up the Telegram and the Discord, more so the Discord. Uh, restructured that relatively recently, got a bunch of new people popping in there. Uh, same with the Telegram. So if that sounds like something that might interest you, go and check it out in the link tree and uh, and pop in and mingle with all the awesome like-minded individuals. And if anybody's interested in being a guest on the show, whether you're an author, researcher, experiencer, uh, cryptid hunter, uh, paranormal investigator, philosopher, open-minded individual all around. Like I say, usually the list can go on and on. If that sounds like you, I definitely want to sit down and have a conversation with you on the show. If you want to get a hold of me, of course, the best way to do so is through Instagram, or you guys can email me at inquiries of our reality podcast at outlook.com, or you can go to the link tree, fill out the submission form, and of course, that'll go directly to my email. Uh, check your spammer junk folder and make sure nothing gets missed because I do respond to every single email I get, of course. And uh, if you can't get enough of my work, you guys can go and check out Bizarre Encounters. That's my other show that I do with my two awesome co-hosts, Orin and Jenny. And just like the title, we dive into anything that would be considered a bizarre encounter, uh, be it paranormal, cryptid, uh, alien, UFO, any of that kind of stuff. Uh, we're diving into it over there. So uh, if that sounds like something might interest you, go and check it out. Uh, if you guys want to keep tabs on all the different things that I do, I keep everything under the umbrella of Open Minds Media. I do have an Instagram, of course, set up for that. And there is your one-stop shop for any new episodes coming out with any of the shows that I do under that umbrella. 
Uh, if you guys want to support the show, there's multiple ways to do so. You guys can join the Open Minds Media Patreon, and I call it the Open Minds Media Patreon because I try to make it so there's a little bit more bang for your buck. Uh, not only do you get this show, but you also get Bizarre Encounters, of course, and uh, you'll get things such as ad-free episodes, early access to episodes, lives of episodes, live replays of episodes, which is the raw video format if you guys aren't able to make it to the lives of the episodes, of course. Uh, exclusive merch store discounts, uh, exclusive giveaways, monthly hangouts, and that's always expanding. There's always new stuff going on over there. Uh, there's multiple tiers, of course, so go and check it out. Figure out which one suits you the best. And I can't stress enough how much the support for the show is needed as far as the show being able to grow, make it so I can spend more time doing this, pumping out even more awesome episodes and content for you guys, hopefully expand in the future into books and other forms of media, of course. Uh, but the only way I'm ever going to be able to do that is with your guys' support. So uh, even if it's just a little bit, uh, anything counts. And of course, I appreciate anything that you guys do. And the only way that I'm ever going to be able to make my dreams come true as far as being able to do this full time is with your guys' support. And I don't want to hide a bunch of stuff behind a paywall. I don't want to have to split episodes. I don't want to have to uh, make it so certain episodes are here, certain episodes are there. Um, I might do some exclusive shows in the future, of course, as far as the Patreon goes. But uh, you know, I don't want to put a bunch of stuff behind a paywall or anything for you guys. So any support, like I said, is more appreciated than you guys will ever realize. And if you guys want to donate to the show, there's multiple ways to do so. You guys can donate through Venmo, Cash App, PayPal, or Red Circle, which is the RSS host for the show. Uh, if you're interested in doing it that way, uh, go down to the show description. At the very bottom, you'll see something along the lines of support this show on Red Circle. Uh, you guys can donate that way. Uh, if any of you guys donate and it doesn't give you an option for a personalized message, uh, please send me an email or a message on Instagram so I can give you guys a shout out on the show because like I was just saying, any uh, love and support for the show is more appreciated than you guys will ever realize. And the third way you guys can support the show is through the Open Minds Media merch store. Uh, there, you won't just find t-shirt designs for inquiries, but you'll also find stuff for Bizarre Encounters, Bite Size Bizarreties. And uh, hopefully by the time this comes out, I'll already have them added onto there, but I was working on some new shirt designs for both shows actually. Uh, if you guys want to keep updated on that, knowing that's coming out, of course, go and check out the Instagram because I'm sure that I'll be posting it as soon as I get those designs finalized and end up putting them onto the store, of course. And uh, if anybody buys anything from the Open Minds Media merch store, please, if you don't mind, send me a picture of you guys wearing it because I'd love to repost it and show that there's love and support out there in the world for the show, of course. And uh, while we're talking about love and support, I definitely recommend going and checking out Joe over at Crypto Theology. Uh, one of my personal favorites as far as cryptid merchandise goes. Uh, he's got paranormal stuff. He's got alien stuff. And I'm always amazed at all the awesome designs he creates. And they just got this, uh, this perfect like comic book, almost like nineties feel to them. Some stuff is parody. Some stuff is uh, completely original designs, but I love what Joe's doing over there. And I think you guys will too. So if you haven't already go and check it out. Uh, I'm sure that you guys have probably seen me post some shirts on Instagram because I am always wearing Joe's crypto theology shirts because I just love them so much to be honest with you. And uh, everything that I mentioned, of course, all available under the link tree, which is available down in the show description. And with that, let's get into the show. Please welcome to the show, son of legendary Bigfoot researcher, Paul Freeman. Please welcome his son, Michael Freeman. Hey, thanks for having me on the show. I'm excited to have a conversation. So uh, for anybody that might not be familiar with the Freeman name, and I mean, assumably if they're listening to the show, they might have some kind of idea, but pretending like somebody didn't know anything about it, uh, why don't you kind of give them a rough idea about who you are, who your family is, and all the things that you've been researching into? 
Uh, well, you're correct. Uh, I am the son of Paul Freeman, uh, the youngest child in the family, actually. And uh, my father, Paul Freeman, is, um, or was, I should say, I suppose, he's no longer with us, uh, one of the pioneer Bigfoot researchers, uh, especially for the area that uh, I grew up in. Uh, legendary Bigfoot researcher, some people would say. Um, others, not so much, maybe. But, uh, you know, that's what makes it exciting in conversation. Uh, but he's most well-known for the Freeman footage uh, that he shot in 1992 at Duck Spring, Oregon, and it's generally considered the second best piece of visual evidence there is, of course, next to the Patterson-Gimlin film. And honestly, for anybody that hasn't seen it, I highly recommend going and watching it. And more than likely, if you haven't seen it, I'll include a link in the show description so you'll know exactly what we're looking at. But as far as Bigfoot footage goes, it is some of the craziest footage that I've ever seen where you get the perfect full view of a Sasquatch just walking right across the camera. But I guess kind of being his son and maybe possibly knowing what kind of led up to that, um, when you watch the footage, it just starts off with kind of like the ground and then it leads up to a bush where you see him walk across. Um, what's kind of like the the background of that what what exactly led up to that point where you captured that footage uh well the background of that actually had had been about 10 years uh, to be honest with you you know um my dad had this really large forest service map um that he had kept from when he was working you know with the umatilla national forest and he kept all his data on that map uh, any tracks that were found any sightings by anyone in that area uh, you know, any vocalizations heard by anyone in that area, anything like that, uh, he would put that data on that map. Uh, not just him, but, you know, Wes Summerlin and Grover Krantz and Dave Bean and Bill Lowry and all those guys from the area were writing on this map and they were documenting this data. Um, and my dad had come to realize over time that this place, D-Duck Spring, had really high traffic in the late summer. Um, and especially like every other year, it seemed to like pick up and there were lots of sightings around there and they were finding lots of footprints and, and all this evidence. So, you know, by 1992, which was, you know, 10 years after he had his initial encounter with Bigfoot, he had kind of really zeroed in on this area for August, uh, to, you know, do his research and hopefully, you know, find some evidence, hopefully get something. And, and he was carrying a camera with him all the time, you know, at that point, but, uh, you know, he had been up there the the week that he got that footage. He'd been there every day and he was getting there, you know, around six o'clock in the morning and he was staying half the day sometimes, you know, and just, uh, you know, watching the area and kind of waiting for them to show. And, and he wasn't having any luck whatsoever. And, you know, they would find uh, disturbances around the, the pond's edge or stuff like that. Uh, sometimes what they thought might be a footprint, you know like little evidence that wasn't really anything to get excited about, but, you know, certainly no sightings. And he actually was starting to get a little, you know, dejected. Um, and he had it in his mind that he was missing them somehow. He thought they were coming earlier than he was. And they were, you know, using the pond and getting their water source. And then they were leaving before he, he got there. Um, and, you know, as it turns out, uh, he was quite wrong you know, in that thought process. And uh, it's something that I talk about, you know, in the book, I do tell the story, but, um, you know, the, the night before he got the footage, he got a phone call from my sister and her car was broken. You know, it, it wouldn't start and it was broken down. And, and she had asked him if he'd come and, and fix it in the morning. 
And, you know, dad being dad, of course, said, you know, sure, sis, I'll, I'll come and, you know, fix your car. And so he didn't have any plans on even going to D-Duck that day. And he got up in the morning and went to my sister's house and, you know, fixed her car and got her running. And he went and got a cup of coffee. Uh, and then, you know, about half halfway home, as the story goes, he just kind of thought, like, what the hell? I'll just go up there anyway. And, and maybe, you know, we'll find some footprints or uh, some fresh evidence and, you know, if you knew my dad, there's no place he'd rather be anyway than, than in the mountains. So it was the perfect opportunity to just kind of kind of get away. And he ended up, you know, eventually getting up to D-Duck Spring about four hours later than he normally was. And, uh, you know, the rest is history. He, you know, got up there and got out of his vehicle and, you know, immediately noticed that there were prints leading, you know, down to the pond and, and back up into the, the tree cover uh, which is when he started filming and, you know, one walked out literally right in front of him. And I've always kind of chalked it up to, you know, there's some kind of mistake that was made, you know, by that, by that animal. And when my dad wasn't there at the time that they were used to him being there, they decided that, you know, they needed to show themselves and, you know, he just happened to be in the right place at the right time. Do you think it was a matter of they were almost tracking him and they knew that he was there around a certain time every day, so they would purposely not be there at that time? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, they would have had to have known he was there. They were probably watching him, to be honest. He he may have been correct in that aspect that they were watching him and waiting for him to leave. And then they were they were coming out and getting their water. Uh, they would have at least, I would assume, like be used to his scent or the sound of his vehicle. Uh, you know, something like that. They would know when he was coming and when, when he was leaving. And, uh, you know, the tracks that were there, especially the ones that were at the water's edge around the pond, were so fresh. I mean, they still had, like, water in them where they had been, you know, pressed down. Then my dad always thought that as he was driving up, they were drinking at the pond, you know, or at least one of them was. And then it, it took off um, as he got out of its vehicle. Um, went in a certain direction, which we'll call the, the right of the screen, you know, for video watching purposes, and then, you know, decides to show itself and walk from right to left across the screen, right in front of him. Uh, and of course, we now, you know, have a pretty positive idea of why it decided to show itself. So also too, kind of connecting into your dad said that it was a certain time during summer when these things would be there. Um, was he like tracking like migration patterns? Or did he ever like share like a reason why he thought they were in this area at a specific time? Uh, yeah, he was tracking basically migration through, you know, where they were finding footprints. Um, and and D-Duck Spring it was like this hot zone um, of activity and, and where footprints have been found for many years. And then it kind of radiated out from there in like a five, ten mile radius. And it got like lesser and lesser. Uh, but one of the, the big factors for that particular area is that D-Duck Spring is a cold, viable freshwater source that is active all year and it never dries up. And the water literally bubbles out of the ground um, and then runs down and it runs into this pond. Um, and the, you know, the mountains in that area and the Blue Mountains tend to get dry. And so by that time of the year in August, you have viable water sources that are drying up. They're not being used a lot. And then you have all this game, not just, you know, Sasquatch, but deer and elk and, and everything else that are coming. And they come into this pond and that's where they, you know, get their water from. And so uh, first and foremost... I think it's just kind of a given that that you would assume that something was using that. Um, but like I said, you know, previously they had also noticed uh, because of this mapping data that they were doing that in the late summer activity really picked up around there. And they've been watching this for about 10 years. 
you know, and, and he finally just hit it on the head right day at the right time, right time on accident, maybe, you know, but uh, <laughs> the results all the same. And uh, when your dad re- released the footage, um, like what, what was his intention behind it? Like, did he, was he thinking that he was going to show this and everybody was going to believe in Sasquatch? Was he expecting that he was going to get like ridicule in return? Or like what was what, what kind of led up to the moment of him deciding that he wanted to release the footage that he got? Well, I mean, I think that he knew he was going to get some ridicule, especially from certain people that had been giving him ridicule for, for a long time. But, you know, in my dad's mind, and it, it may have been naive, but since June 10th, 1982, when he had his first encounter, all he had done was try to prove to all the naysayers, all the non-believers, basically everybody in the world that he wasn't crazy, you know, and, and that was pretty much his goal, you know, was to do that. And so when he did get the footage, he obviously thought like, well, here it is. I've got it. You know, they can't, they can't say that now. You can't disprove this. Here it is. I've got the proof. Uh, and I'm going to release it to the world. And, uh, you know, he released it and, you know, it took about two days for all the, you know, naysayers and, and all that to come out of the woodwork and, and try to shoot it down and all that. And he never got the recognition for it that he at least was hoping for. You know, but uh, yeah, I mean, he he was just, you know, trying to prove to the world that these things are real and, you know, that he wasn't crazy and that he wasn't a liar. For anybody that uh, might not be familiar, what was his like first experience that led into all of this deep research for him? Well, he was working for the Forest Service, uh, the Umatilla National Forest. Uh, He was working in the Mill Creek watershed which is, you know, the Blue Mountains there. And he was a boundary patrolman. Uh, so he was in charge of about 25 miles of the watershed boundary, just keeping out, you know, people that weren't supposed to be in there and poachers and, and those type of stuff. Um, you know, I has recently come to my knowledge, um, and I guess I'm being naive or I didn't know, the, that I found out that not everywhere has municipal watersheds, you know, because where I grew up, that, that's a, what we had. Um, and, and it's government land that has a water source that runs through it. It's, you know, the Mill Creek watershed there in the Blue Mountains. And it supplies the drinking water for the city of Walla Walla and Milton Free Water and the, the little towns that are around there. Um, and you can't go in there if you're, you're a civilian. It's, it's, it's off limits. You know, you, you can get arrested. So uh, he, he was a patrolman for that, you know, in charge of keeping people out and, and whatnot. But uh, long story short, June 10th, 1982. Uh, working for the Forest Service, he was out on patrol, and he had spotted a herd of elk, and he decided that he was going to get out of his vehicle and follow them down this old logging road, which was right off of what we call Tiger Canyon. Uh, and he was coming around a bend in the road, and a about, as he described it, eight-foot-tall prehistoric man uh, stepped off of the, the bank of this logging road right into the middle of the road and stopped and looked at him and then turned around and walked off and walked about 200 yards uh, up the hill and through the trees. And that's uh, what set off his 15 year obsession with, you know, chasing Bigfoot, researching Bigfoot, trying to figure out what this was because he was not a a believer when that happened. And And he thought that those stories were, you know, silly, made up stuff for, you know, old drunken cowboys and, you know, things like that. Um, but it made a believer out of him very quickly. Did he uh, have any other visual experiences uh, besides, of course, the film and his original experience? 
Yes, he did. Yeah. Um, we have uh, um, four, I guess you could say, uh, documented sightings. Um, he, he had his original sighting on June 10th, 1982. Him and my brother Dwayne on October 5th, 1988 also had a sighting together uh, where there were some still photographs that were taken and, and you can view those in the book. Um, and then in April of 1992, um, he had a sighting as well at uh, a place we call Green Peak, uh, where one crossed the road in front of his truck. Um, and then, of course, the, the deduct footage, you know, that day. Um, there is a possibility that there's potential another sighting, um, but I don't uh, count that as a documented sighting, even though he was with. Wes Summerlin and Bill Lowry and Dave Bean and some of those guys, it was a multiple person account, but it was very foggy. And so they couldn't really tell exactly what it was. Um, and so I personally don't uh, count that. So four documented sightings, uh, three of them with uh, visual proof. Wow. <laughs> and then uh, as far as like you and your brother kind of getting involved in everything that your father was doing, uh, where did that kind of start coming into play? Was it more like he was he was trying to pass the knowledge on to you guys so you guys could continue the research? Or was he was it just kind of you guys were interested because you guys knew that he was into this kind of stuff? Uh, well, it started with my brother right away because when he had his initial encounter in 1982, you know, my brother was, was 16 years old, you know, almost 17. Um, and he was already, you know, an experienced hunter and, and was with my dad all the time. And so I think he just kind of got interested in it, you know, because he was always in the mountains with my dad and that kind of thing. And I was five years old at the time, so I was not involved, you know, in, in <laughs> anything that was Bigfoot. And um, I went hunting, you know, on occasion. I, I was taken along. Um, it wasn't until a couple of uh, like years later that, you know, I got more avid in, into hunting. And then I wasn't involved in Bigfoot until I was 10 years old, which was uh, the first time my dad allowed me to go and uh look at tracks and, and things like that i guess you know i can only assume at an age when i was you know mo more trustworthy and, and probably a little bit safer to take out there he didn't have to worry about me you know as much um but i wouldn't say as far as i'm concerned that it was like an interest so to speak because i grew up with it you know from the time i was five i, I was raised in it and so it was just there and it wasn't something that you questioned and it wasn't something that you really thought about or, you know, you even had like excitement or an interest in it. It was just part of life. You know, it was like going fishing or going hunting with dad. And so we're going to go, you know, researching today. And, uh, you know, that's just the way it was. Uh, a little bit different for my brother where he was older when it initially happened. And so there was all that excitement of, of something that was unknown you know, but um, by the time I got around to it, and especially by the time the footage was taken and I was 15, you know, it had already been in my life for 10 years. And um, it was just normal every day. You know, this is this is what we do. <laughs> I, I don't know. I guess to, to someone that's not in a Bigfoot family, like that probably sounds odd, you know, but it just it wasn't something that was, you know, questioned. It was just part of everyday life. It's kind of a weird thing to think about sometimes, though, is that, you know, everybody that's in this community, you're really digging into this stuff more than likely because you kind of stumbled upon it on your own. But if you grow up with this stuff, it's not like taboo. It's not as like exciting. So it's like you end up acquiring all of this knowledge on the topic, but it's not in like the forefront of your mind. And, you know, assumably at some point it kind of became more of the forefront, which probably led up to you writing uh, the book. But um, 
like what what exactly was like the the sparking thing that made it so that you wanted to really write this book and uh, really get like all of your father's research and everything out and really show him in a different light other than everybody just knowing him by that forty five second piece of footage. Yeah, I mean, uh, it was just time, you know. I think, uh, and it needed to be done. It, it really did. It, it needed to be done. Something you know needed to be done for my dad to get his, kind of his whole story out there. So you know, people did uh, get a bigger picture of who he was and what he was doing. And I had been, you know, hearing for some years from, you know, different people like, oh, this needs to be done. This should be done. Someone should do this, you know, and that, and that type of deal. And, and finally, I just decided, you know, yeah, you know, hey, let's go do it, you know. And, you know, to be honest with you, you know, the people who are watching, if they're not aware, uh, my dad is you know, somewhat of a controversial figure as well. You know, in in the Bigfoot community, it's not all you know roses and and yay for for Paul Freeman. And so every time that I would hear something that was negative, or every time I would hear something that was incorrect, um, especially online, because there's a lot of incorrect information online, and it's people that are are trying to do good, but they have like uh, wrong dates or wrong information or the wrong names, or they have the wrong story, or it's uh, a story that they're crediting to my dad, but it's not. You know, he didn't do that. Or something. Every time I saw something like that, or every time I heard something, it just kind of ate at me like a little bit more. And you know, finally, I just decided, like, you know, I'm going to do something. We're gonna, we're gonna do this. Um, and that was about 2016, actually. And I started it, and it kind of just died. And I, I put it on the shelf, and I, I didn't do anything about it. And then, you know, early like 2000, you know, 22, um, I kind of picked it back up. And then I, you know, got a lot of really good support and Doug Highcheck, you know, called me on the phone and he says, I want to publish it. Like, let's do it. I've got this technology. This is going to be awesome. And, uh, you know, Cliff Berrickman and Jeff Meldrum and, and everyone that contributed, you know, to my book jumped on board and I had something that was bigger than what it initially was going to be. And I also had something that was vastly different than what it was initially going to be. Um, and so, you know, I ended up doing something I didn't expect, I guess, um, for better or for worse. I, I'm not sure right now, <laughs> but, you know, it's certainly not your your typical uh, Bigfoot book because it's more of a memoir of my dad and kind of what life was like with him. And it's not a bunch of, you know, uh, scientific dialogue and graphs and diagrams and, and, you know, all this stuff, you know, that you see in a lot of the books. Uh it's more of a personal story and some people like that and some people don't. So, you know, it is what it is, but, uh, I'm fairly pleased. I mean, so far, at least where I'm at, I'm kind of a slow reader with the kids trying to get an opportunity to really read stuff, but, uh, I'm a couple chapters into it and I've thoroughly enjoyed it so far. And I definitely love the fact that you have the QR codes involved. So you really get to see some extra footage that typically isn't something that's seen in books. That's a very interesting aspect to throw into it. But, uh, I guess for anybody, that may not be familiar with, with your dad as a person. Um, because like you said, you're kind of trying to like set the record straight. Um, why don't you kind of like paint a picture of like who your dad really was to kind of just clear the air on anybody that may not really understand what he was really, really doing. Right. Yeah. I mean, my dad was, uh, I mean, God, he was a giant man, you know, he was six foot five and, and 260 pounds. And, very intimidating, you know, the, the machismo tough guy, um, hunter, trapper, tracker had been doing, you know, that type of stuff his whole life. 
Um, but you know, uh, that, that's not really who he was. You know, he was very kind and he was, he was very loving. Um, and he, he was a very understanding person and, and he was someone that, uh, would help anybody to do anything, you know? And a lot of people don't, don't realize that, you know, about him, but, um, he was, you know, um, as far as Bigfoot goes and as far as Bigfoot trackers go, and outdoorsmen and the, and the skills that they possess. Uh, you know, Tom Powell uh, called my dad, you know, quite possibly the greatest Bigfoot tracker of all time. Um, I would have to agree just based on outdoor skill set. As far as hunters go, um, I don't think there's ever been anybody better. There may, there may never be. Um, you know, as far as being highly educated, um, you know, scientifically and all that stuff, no, nah, that, that was not him. You know, he had a, a mountain education and a, and a street education, you know, so he wasn't like a real uh, highly cerebral man, you know. But um, if you were, I always tell people, you know, my dad was the guy that if you were lost in the woods, my dad was the guy that you would want to come find you. Is that uh, just, again, from a means of him, did he, did he like develop his own methods as far as tracking goes or did he like learn or like where did his uh, his method kind of like deter that made him, you know, like the, the master, so to speak, Sasquatch uh, hunter or tracker that he was? Well, I don't know if he was a master Sasquatch tracker. I don't think anyone is a master Sasquatch tracker, to be honest. I guess you're uh, yeah, you're right on that one. Same with the experts we, thing. We don't even know what they are, you know. Um, and so there's that, uh, but he was a very highly skilled animal tracker and that was learned from his father. Um, and his father was an avid hunter and, um, you know, his father was, a he also raced hounds, um, and him and my dad would hunt bear and they'd hunt coon and, and all that stuff with hounds. Um, and my dad learned how to, you know, track not only animals, but track dogs as well, um, and follow dogs, you know, and my dad was also a trapper. And that's something that he learned from, from his father as well. And, you know, when I was a kid, man, um, you know, we didn't have any money and we made it through winters sometimes on muskrat pelts, you know, at like a dollar 50 a pelt. Yeah, <laughs> no, seriously. And, uh, eating elk and deer and bear, you know, that, that was in the freezer, but my, my dad was trapping and he was killing, you know, cougars and bobcats and coyotes and muskrats and beaver uh, and you know, everything that was worth money at the time, Canadian Lynx, you know, um, that was one that was back then as well that they were still hunting. But, um, I remember all that stuff, you know, but you know, his outdoor skills came, you know, directly from his father. Um, and I'm assuming that, you know, his came from his father. And so it's something that's, you know, was just passed down. And, uh, it's something that was, you know, passed, uh, my brother and I as well. Um, my brother is much better than me. You know, I'll, I'll admit that. Um, but, you know, it, it's there to a, to a degree and neither one of us are our father, not, not even close. So, so do you guys uh, still investigate the area that he was looking at or uh, has, has your, you and your brother kind of like moved on to different areas or? Uh, yeah, we both live in different areas now. I live about two hours north of, of where my dad was investigating in the Blue Mountains there. Uh, my brother lives about uh, six hours, seven hours west. Uh, so I'm a little bit closer. I actually haven't been back to the film site where the footage was taken at D-Duck 
in about 16, 17 years, something oh. like that. It's It's been a long time since I've been back there, but uh, everyone that goes there sends me pictures all the time, you know, so I, I do get to see it. And uh, there's a possibility that a little bit later this summer, um, I actually could be going back there to uh, to do a little bit of research. So does it um, seem like it's me. still a pretty active area or has it kind of like tapered out since time's gone on? Uh, well, if you listen to certain people, they'll tell you it's tapered out, but it's not true. Uh, you know, not even close. As a matter of fact, uh, last August, uh, there were on two different occasions, there were tracks found at D-Duck Spring. Um, there were tracks found in 2008 there as well with an actual encounter uh, that accompanied that. And then there's a couple of local people, uh, John Summerlin being one of them. You know, he still lives down there and he's West Summerlin's grandson. And he still does. He will tell you firsthand that it is a very active area still. You know, nothing has really dropped off. What has dropped off from the 80s and 90s are the people that were with my dad um, and them publicizing the evidence that they found. Uh, You know, they've all died off except for one of them. And so that has stopped and you're not getting as much publicity in the newspapers and in the news locally on it down there. But uh, certainly there's still activity there. Have you uh, just I forgot to ask it a little bit earlier, but have you ever uh, actually had an experience yourself um, in that area or just in any any Sasquatch area in general? I've never had a sighting, so I've never seen one. for better or for worse, I, I tend to think that's for better, to be honest with you. Uh, but um, I've been very close to one, at least I, I believe. Uh, again, another story that I, I do tell in the book and I, I kind of talk about. But, uh, you know, when I was uh, 12, my dad took me mushroom hunting uh, up on Green Peak. And we we were very close to one. Uh, it was raining that day. We, we went down this trail. We were looking for morels. And it had started to rain on us, kind of a heavy rain. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. And we decided to double back to the truck and, you know, kind of wait out the rainstorm and maybe eat lunch, something like that. And on the way back, you know, backtracking the trail that we just come down, um, maybe five minutes we backtracked or whatever. Uh, we came across some tracks that crossed right over the trail uh, where we had just been. And I just remember my dad, like, shushing me, you know, um, looking at some stuff. And then, you know, grabbing my arm and, and like double timing me back to, you know, his old international scout, uh, getting in the truck, locking the doors, rolling the windows up and grabbing his, uh, you know, 350 Norma Magnum rifle off the back rack and setting it down across his lap while the windows in the truck fogged up. You know, I really remember like the windows fogging up in the truck uh, from me and him breathing and, and him trying to run the heater to like, you know, clear it out. And uh, God, it gives me, I get goosebumps when I talk about it because I remember it so like vividly just being like uh, scared, 
I guess, you know, but not scared at the same time because I was with my dad. And, and if you were with my dad, you, you, you wouldn't be scared like that. You know, that's kind of how I grew up. But at, at the same time, just being like nervous, you know, I guess maybe more than scared that, that something was going to happen. And uh, my dad telling me, you know, it's watching us like it, it knows who we are. You know, we're just going to hang out for a bit, you know, just, you know, keep your eyes peeled. You know, don't worry, Mikey, that, you know, that, that type of thing. And uh, I don't know how long we sat there, man. I always say like, it could have been an hour. I don't know. It, it felt like forever. Um, and then finally, you know, we left and he took me home and dropped me off. And uh, he went and got like Bill Lowry and uh, Vance Orchard, West Summerlin, I think. They went back up there. Uh, but that's, um, you know, as close as I've ever been, at least to my knowledge, you know. And uh, I've also come up with my dad on tracks that that were fresh you know on a couple of other instances but you know just i always tell people like it's so eerie when you come up on fresh tracks you know when you're in the forest and usually there's like this buzz in the forest and there's all these sounds and birds and insects and all that and and you come up on these fresh tracks and there's nothing it's just like silence like the birds aren't chirping you know bugs aren't making noise nothing's in the area whatsoever um and that man is like oh that'll that'll run chills right up your spine like every single time, because whatever is there, whatever just went through there, either everything is so scared of it that even the bugs won't make noise or they respect it so much, you know, that they're silent, you know, so they're not going to like tell any like tales of that it's been there, you know, something like that. It's just like this weird mystery of the forest, but uh, it's spooky, man. Uh, it's Oh, yeah. And it actually kind of leads me into the next thing that I was going to ask, too. Um, obviously, everybody kind of has like a different understanding of what they believe Bigfoot could be. Um, but like as far as like your dad and you also, um, did you ever kind of get an idea of like what your dad uh, like kind of had an idea of like Sasquatch was like a missing link or, you know, um, yeah. Gigantopithecus or like what was kind of his idea and yours also? You know, well, yeah, as, as I've said, uh, you know, uh, before, like. He wasn't super sciencey, you know. He wasn't educated that way, so um, a lot of the stuff he he he, you know, would have re just referred to it as like prehistoric man, you, you know that that type of thing. And we knew what Giganto was, um, and we knew like the the idea of the missing link or whatever. But you know, my dad's first impression when he had the sighting in 1982 when he was working for the Forest Service is he said that it looked to him like it was a prehistoric man but it was totally covered in hair. Uh, but, you know, it had, you know, hands and feet like we did. And, you know, it walked upright, but its knees were always bent. And, you know, so it had these like sort of ape features in its movement, but he didn't really equate it to being an ape, you know, and uh, he does give an interview later, you know, in his life, uh, shortly before he died, where he flat out says that even though they may resemble an ape in the face, he doesn't think that they are necessarily apes and he still like has that prehistoric man kind of concept. Like it's a, you know, a relic hominin on our bushy family tree, Jeff Meldrum, right. We'll tell you all about that. Um, and I tend to, you know, agree with that, that it's probably a relative of ours. Uh, that's, you know, a relic hominin and it's not necessarily like a gorilla or a ring or, you know, even though they're, really dominance as well but uh something a little closely related you know to us but um 
you know, I'm not the super sciencey guy either. We know when it comes to this as well. I don't really spend my time thinking about that. I don't, you know, you listen to Jeff or you listen to Cliff Barrickman, you know, and these guys and they'll tell you, you know, robust Australopithecus, what they call Paranthropus, you know, this kind of stuff. Um, yeah, sure. <laughs> whatever, whatever you want to call it, you know. Um, I don't spend my time studying it, but um, I do believe that they're on the right track. It's probably something, you know, from our family tree uh, that has survived uh, alongside of us and has evolved as well. But certainly 100% living, breathing, organic animal from this planet, most likely an ape species, even though it's going to make some people mad. But people that are getting mad, remember, we are an ape species. Mm-hmm. So if you want to say they're people or they're the Sabe or whatever, calling them an ape is not an insult because we're apes as well. Um, so I think they fall into that line. I don't believe in the aliens from outer space, time traveling, interdimension traveling, the portal moving like, you know, phantoms or whatever. Um, but with that being said, uh, I also will admit that uh, I'm smart enough to know that I don't know anything. And that I could be wrong. And there's a lot of weird stuff that happens around Sasquatch sightings, you know, and that's uh, I'm open to the possibility that, you know, I'm a dumbass and I don't know anything. And so the two things I like to tell people, the two things in life that I really don't know anything about, honestly, you know, um, are religion and Bigfoot. And, you know, maybe one of these days I'll know for sure the answers to both those questions. Um, You know, most likely not. But, I mean, that's always a good angle to come at it from, though, because with that, it kind of gives you the opportunity for growth and more learning. Because if you're just looking at it from one specific box, then, you know, you're you're going to look for things that fit that opinion. But at least, you know, you formed your guys' opinion through the knowledge that you guys have on the topic. So, I mean, realistically, that's the best you really can do is kind of come to your own conclusions based off of your own research. Yeah, correct. You know, and, and you look at the evidence and it, it leads you there. Especially with the fact that, you know, there's prints, we find prints that have the, you know, dramatic lithics on them. Uh, You know, and and that is not solely an ape trait. You know, the the great apes do have them on on their fingers and feet. And, of course, we do as well. Um, You know, but, uh, you know, dogs and and pigs have, you know, dermals as well. They just have them on their nose. Uh, So it's not solely like a human trait, but um, it, it... it leads you to believe that it's some type of ape species because of where they're being found, like, you know, in the prints and, and that it's not something else um, unless they're, you know, really good at mimicking ape species, I suppose, <laughs> you know, something like that. But, you know, like I said, man, I, if, if you show me the evidence that shows me that, you know, these are not living, breathing organic apes from this planet and you have solid evidence to convince me of that, I will listen to you. Because, you know, I'm bring me the evidence, man. That's what I'm here for. That's what I think we should all be here for. I don't listen to rumors and hearsay and and stories and stuff like that. Uh, Bring evidence to the table. and, And if you don't have evidence, then you don't have anything. Just out of curiosity, too, the area that your dad used to research into um, you hear about a lot of people saying that they find like squatch structures or the, the rock stacks. Um, did he end up finding anything along those lines to make it seem like it was like a, I guess like a, like a semi-regular area that they were staying in versus maybe living somewhere else and just coming there specifically just for water at certain times of day? Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, 
15 years, he researched, you know, the same general area, uh, not one mention of structures, you know, um, not one mention either of tree knocks. It, <laughs> it's, it's not something that occurred or, or it's not something they were paying attention to. You know, uh, there's, there's two different possibilities there. Um, I know that uh, due to his uh, personal audio accounts, I do have one instance of him talking about a rock structure uh, that was found high up um, on a ridge. Um, he did, though, think that that pot potentially was uh, Native American and very, very old. Uh, and he didn't, uh, you know, sum it up with, with Sasquatch whatsoever. Uh, but that's that's the only, you know, instance I can think of um, out of all of his research and everything that I've, I've heard and listened to and everything that I have uh, that even mentions any type of structure um, and again, like never a single tree knock. Hmm, that's kind of a, one of those things with the phenomenon that I often kind of wonder if it's even necessarily something specifically linked to Sasquatch versus if there are animals that are around that are scared, scared of this thing, it might be a noise that a different animal is making as like a deterrent. That's, I've always kind of wondered uh, yeah, if it's directly I mean, connected yeah. or not. <laughs> you know, there's all kinds of stuff that's unexplainable. I mean, there, there really is. Um, and I, I'm not going to say like what it could be or, or, or what it's not, but you know, there, there's all kinds of things that are unexplainable. And, uh, when it comes to, you know, tree knocks and then especially structures, like both of those things, you know, in the history of Sasquatch are relatively new, you know, those are things that are only really prevalent, like in the last 20 years. Um, and before that you have like a mention or so of uh, a possible tree knock something like that. I believe Titmus may have said something about it in the late seventies. Um, but it's not something that's, um, you know, is really prevalent until about 20 years ago. And then all of a sudden you start getting all these tree knocks and then you start getting all these structures. And now you have like tree branches that are bent over in an arc and it, Oh, it has to be like Sasquatch and this and that. And, and everything now is, it has to be Bigfoot. And, you know, um, <laughs> I'm going to watch what I say, uh, but <laughs> You know, it's, it's good and bad. It's good because people are interested and they're going out there and they're doing research, okay? And they're getting excited about things. But it's bad because people are getting excited about things that probably aren't Bigfoot. I mean, honestly. Um, and every time you go out and every time you're doing research, you're not going to get a picture of Bigfoot. And every time you go out, you're not going to find footprints and you're not going to find a structure that Bigfoot built. And you're not going to find trees that are bent over, you know? And, you know, I kid you not, I could take you to the public park that's half a mile from my house here in Spokane and show you 20 trees that are bent over in, in a circle um, where people say that doesn't happen naturally. Well, it does actually, it does happen naturally and it happens all the time. Um, and nature in general, you know, the whole world and the universe is built on math and things fall in patterns and things pile in patterns. And it just, this is what happens, you know, and I'm not saying that, you know, every time you find cross sticks on the ground, that it's natural. Okay. I'm not saying that. Um, but I think 99% of the time, yeah, it probably is, you know? Um, and what I would really like to see without, you know, insulting or, you know, and, and offending anyone who's, who wants to be a researcher is people getting back to the roots of researching and not trying to rely so much on technology and not trying to rely so much on just hoping that they found something and, getting excited to share it. So they'll get a hundred likes on, you know, Facebook or something, but getting back to learning how to actually track 
um, and starting at the ground up and leaving the technology at home and leaving the Facebook likes at home and just going out there and being quiet and spending the time uh, and observing and, you know, seeing what you can what you can find. Because I think that the the older guys, I think the, the pioneer trackers of, of old, the Paul Freemans and the West Summerlands and the Bob Tidmus, you know, and those guys um, were by far better than the trackers that we have today. Um, and, I, and I think it's probably due to technology. And I think that technology makes people lazy and that they, they don't take time to learn how to actually be a tracker because they think that they can just go out with their GPS and their video camera and their thermal, you know, and uh, motion detectors and recorders and all this stuff. And it's gonna, they're going to magically produce evidence. Well, guess what? We haven't gotten any visual evidence that's better than what my dad got in 1992. Mm-hmm. I mean, even connecting him with that, too, with animals in general, like they can see the infrared sometimes, depending on the animal. Um, They can smell the plastic. Uh, They can hear like that high pitch whining noise that comes off of it. So, I mean, even if you're just looking at Bigfoot, like it's more animal like than some kind of like woo woo creature, Um, like all those things to tear off animals to begin with. That's why people have such an issue with trail cams like getting video of certain animals is because they can literally smell, see, like they know it's there. They're fully aware of it. And even going in with the knocks. Oops, sorry, you understand what animals are capable of doing because, you know, we're, we're humans, you know, and, and we are the species that we are. And we see life through our own eyes only. And you can't even imagine what life looks like through the eyes of even another person, let alone, you know, another animal. But there are some amazing things, you know, um, and like black bears, for example, can actually see like protein content in the food that they're eating. They can visually see that because of the filter that they're actually missing in, in, in their eyes. Um, and so, you know, who knows what Sasquatch are doing, who knows what, what they can see, who knows what kind of senses, you know, that they have, you know, we really don't know. And right now, you know, the best guess we have is, is just that it's, it's a guess, you know, like I said earlier, nobody, we don't know what they are for sure. And we're not going to know until we have one sitting next to us, what they are. Um, and we don't know what they're capable of. We don't know what their senses are. We have an idea, you know, uh, but we don't know. And so, you know, hopefully someday, you know, we're going to know. And, and I think that we will. I think eventually that it, it's going to happen. It's going to be proven to exist. Um, and, you know, I God, I hope it's a logging truck coming <laughs> over the past that like accidentally hits one or something like that. And it's not one that's darted and captured alive or, you know, or something and, and, and take it a study. But, um, you know, eventually we're going to we're going to know what they are. Uh, maybe not in my lifetime, but I certainly hope in my kid's lifetime, you know, and then everyone that, that came before us and, and all these pioneer researchers and, you know, my dad and, and uh, Patterson and, you know, DeHendon, even though, you know, maybe they don't get along with each other. They're all going to be vindicated and they're all going to be right in the long run. And, and I really want to see that happen. Yeah, as do I. Just some type of physical solid something. Because even though, like, where we are with society now, it's like you have all of these different photo editing programs, you have AI art, all of that. So it's like I see it all the time on all the Bigfoot pages. People flood it with all these AI created images and say that they're real images. So it's like, it doesn't matter how good of footage you get nowadays. You could get one directly in front of you waving at you and people still wouldn't believe it. The only way we're ever going to bring any type of like physical legitimate evidence to this whole thing is if we find one that's dead or if we 
you know, capture one. But like you were saying, I would rather prefer that we like came across the carcass of one versus actually catching one because who knows what mainstream science would do to a physical live creature that's in front of them when it's oh, something like I this. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think we do know what they would do. I, I mean, you know, maybe we just don't want to talk about it, but uh, you know, my dad, uh, since, you know, we're, we're talking about him or whatever, you know, he said that he, you know, he didn't want one, you know, to be captured because they would torture it to death and they would torment it, you know, to, to, to the point of its suffering. And, and so, you know, killing one would be much better. Um, I don't want someone to shoot one and kill one either. You know, that's just me. Uh, you know, and although I do think they will be, you know, eventually found, I also kind of like the romanticism of the mystery and not knowing, you know, for sure. Like it, it's kind of fun. And, and I've lived with that my whole life. And, you know, I kind of, I kind of enjoy it, but uh, yeah, I certainly hope, like I said, you know, um, I don't think someone's going to find a dead carcass. I don't think that's ever going to happen. Um, but I think that there's a possibility, like I said, like a, a logging truck could run into one or, or something like that. And you would have the chance to potentially, um, you know, have a dead carcass or at least part of one, you know, as much as you needed, uh, to prove its existence. But I, I don't think we're going to find any bones. I don't think we're going to find some old carcass like that out in the woods. Um, I don't think that's going to happen, but you know, again, it's possible and I could be wrong and you know, maybe I will be. Hey, I've said this theory before, and I kind of hope somebody tries it out, but if these guys are moderately intelligent, they may actually, you know, do something with the carcasses, with their dead, and you see these hills all the time out in the forest, just random hills. I often wonder if they bury their dead, and we could even be walking over these things all the time and not even really realize it because they just look like mounds in the woods, but we won't really know for sure, and people uh, start digging into them, I guess. You know, they could bury their dead. I mean, it's a possibility. Um, and, you know, it depends on, I, I guess, how you believe and who you listen to. And, you know, burying your dead w- would be one of the signs of them having a culture. Um, and, and as far as we know, they don't necessarily have a uh, have a culture. You know, um, we don't know if they really have, like, a language we think possibly with like the tree knocks and uh, the clapping, the whooping, you know, stuff like that, that there, there could be some kind of language there um, that would lead to them having some, some type of culture, but um, you know, it's, it's possible they bury their dead. Um, you know, it's possible that the, you know, the forest just swallows it up, man. And, you know, you don't find dead cougars. You really, you, you don't, and you don't really find, you don't find carcasses of dead bears. People will tell you that they find them all the time. They're lying. Maybe they saw a part of one once, you know, something like that. There's a lot of animals that disappear. You never see any trace of them. And it's, you know, it's not unrealistic to think that's what's happening with Sasquatch, especially in my dad's area down there in the Blue Mountains. You have what's called the Winnaha Toucanid Wilderness. It's 180,000 square acres. There's no roads. The only way you can get in is on foot or horseback. Uh, and, the, you know, there, there's parts of that that's... Uh, you know, white men have never walked on, uh, maybe not even Native Americans. And so, uh, you know, once you get down in there, there's no telling what's in there. And you would have to literally just be the luckiest person of all time. If you went into that area, if you got dropped off in a helicopter in the middle of the Winnehaw, if you even walked up on a 
deer carcass. You'd have to be the luckiest person of all time in that 180,000 square acres. Okay. Uh, now imagine it's a Sasquatch, something that's much more rare, much more rare than even like a cougar, which most people go their entire lives. They don't even see them. Uh, I mean, the, the odds of finding a, a dead carcass are, you know, uh, out of this world. I mean, to, to be honest, even without them, like burying them. And then if they do something like that on top of it, uh, you're never going to find them. It's never going to happen. I mean, even just taking into consideration that if there's a giant chunk of meat laying on the ground, there's so many animals that are going to eat that thing. It's going to be gone regardless than a couple of days. And I mean, people try to bring in the whole aspect of like, you know, we find human carcasses in the woods, but people don't take into consideration all of the disgusting stuff that we eat and the smell that it gives off. So it's not going to be as appetizing to things out in nature as a giant all natural eating Sasquatch would be. So it's like, you know, and then you even have animals that would even be eating the bones. Like that thing could be completely annihilated, gone within like a day or two from just different animals Uh, eating it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And so, you know, I mean, there's, there's always a possibility. You could be that lucky person, man, that that's steps in a hole and twists your ankle um, and falls down on a skull, (laughs) you know, that, that that's under some brush or something like that. And God, I hope that happens, you know, I, I just don't I just don't see it happening, um, honestly. But, um, you know, again, like I'm, I'm not an expert. What do I know? So, you know, may, maybe it will happen. But I guess that's kind of where I'm at with you, that it's like you don't really want it to fully ever get figured out because it's it's fun to to, to get into the mystery yeah. of it. Once it becomes a solid thing, it's just like researching any other animal. You know, actually, when you know, when I was growing up to, to go back in conversation, we were talking about what it was like, you know, around my house. And, you know, I was saying that nah, it was just kind of normal. I was always more interested, to be honest with you, in like the Loch Ness Monster and like, uh, you know, the Lost City of Atlantis and stuff like that. When I was a kid, I was I was kind of into these like mysteries, like like those other like type cryptids uh, a little bit more than Bigfoot because, you know, it was around me all the time. <laughs> and so I really like the mystery of like have, of those things and not knowing like anything about it. But, you know, as I was saying, you know, we're just all guys with opinions, man. There's no Bigfoot experts. There's not a single Bigfoot expert on the planet, regardless of what some people might call themselves or how much, you know, people look up to, you know, certain individuals, there's no Bigfoot experts. I'm not a Bigfoot expert. I'm just a guy with an opinion. And, uh, you know, I can, I can be dead wrong. I mean, at the end of the day, that's kind of where we're all at is that it's like, well, we're never going to actually ever have experts in this field until we physically find one. But then again, it's going to be a totally different thing, but like people have a natural need to want to explore and to have mystery. So it's like, if all of these mysteries in life do get figured out, then there's no means for growth. There's no reason to explore. So it's like, we we need to retain some of these mysteries. And as far as Sasquatch goes, I mean, there's all of the native legends talking about Sasquatch and about how like prevalent they used to be in their culture. So one thing that I've kind of often wondered is if we're on like the down spike of it, that there's not necessarily like an up spike in encounters because of there being more of them. It's just that people are actually going out and actually looking for these things now, but realistically the numbers are getting smaller um, and they're actually like on towards the push of becoming an extinct thing. And that would explain why there was so much native lore about them versus now it's kind of like tapered off besides, you know, just the people physically going out and like trying to look for these things and half the stories that you hear it's like, um, you know, you, you can read a person, but you don't really know for sure if they even for sure saw anything or they might just be telling a story for the sake of Instagram likes like you're kind of talking about earlier in the show. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly don't think their population is, you know, excessively growing 
<laughs> you know, um, at like some exponential rate. I, I, I don't think that's happening. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, honestly speaking, it, it realistically, there probably used to be more of them. And, you know, then as civilization reaches out and grows and, and their survival area shrinks, you know, obviously we're going to have more encounters. Uh, there's probably going to be less of them. And we have people that are actively going out all the time and, and in looking for them. So, you know, there's going to be more encounters there as well. You know, with that being said, uh, I believe it's what, 35% of the United States is still like wildland, something like that. Um, and, and so there, there's plenty um, of room for them to be, you know, at least at the moment. But uh there are still areas, you know, and I was talking about Winnaha, but there, there's still areas that, that people don't go that are inaccessible. Um, and, and so these things, they're always going to have a place to hide. They're always going to have a place to be. And, you know, plus that's where they live and you're in their territory. You know, it's like you go, you know, swimming in the ocean um, or scuba diving. If a shark doesn't want to be seen, you would never see it. You know, and it's the same with Bigfoot. If they don't want to be seen or if they don't have a reason to show themselves to you, you're never going to see them. They, they could watch you all day. And I'm sure that, uh, you know, they do. So I'm sure there's many, many occasions where people are out there and, uh, you know, there's Sasquatch in the area that are watching them and they, they never even know. I'm just hoping that we end up figuring out at least I don't want to get figured out too soon, of course, because I definitely enjoy the mystery. But I hope that the mystery gets figured out right before they become extinct, at least if they are becoming extinct so that we will know for sure, at least something instead of them being something that almost gets like lost in time uh, between like stories and them eventually not maybe even having like a physical being here anymore. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you, you hope something like that doesn't happen, but uh, yeah, maybe, you know, like I said, I, I hope it does get figured out. I think that it will, um, but I'm kind of torn because at the same time, yeah, I, you know, I, I do like the romanticism, like of that mystery. And I do like, uh, you know, the, the what if and the, and the not exactly knowing what they are. You know, I mean, what if we, you know, do kill one or find one? What if, what if we discover, you know, them and we find out exactly what they are? And it's completely not what we want. And, that you know, and then, then where do you go, you know, from there? Um, you know, I guess you have proof, but, you know. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, I guess um, since you said you're kind of time pressed and kind of starting to wrap up a little bit, uh, for anybody that's enjoyed the conversation and they got to get their hands on your book and see all of this awesome research and get a real like view of your dad, uh, where can they find your book at? And uh, also, do you have anything that you're working on in the future um, that they might be able to keep an eye out for also? Well, you can find my book pretty much anywhere that sells books online, I guess, uh, most notably Amazon. You know, if you go to Amazon.com and you search for Freeman Bigfoot Files, you can you can find the book. Um, you can also get it at Barnes & Noble online. You can go to HangerOnePublishing.com, buy it directly from the publisher. Uh, Cliff Berrickman at the North American Bigfoot Center does carry them as well. Uh, so you can go to NorthAmericanBigfootCenter.com and, and go shopping there if you'd like. Um, not particularly working on anything at the moment. Uh, I just, you know, spin slowly and, uh, you know, I've got the kids and work and life and all this stuff. So, um, I don't know if there's ever going to be another book or not, you know, I, I did think about it and, um, if there is, it'll, it'll be a little bit down the road, but, uh, I do have some, 
you know, conferences this summer. I actually have one on the 17th here in Spokane, the Sasquatch Roundup. Um, and then August 11th and 12th down in uh, Baker City, Oregon. I'm going to be down there for the, big, the uh, Blue Mountain Bigfoot Fest. Um, and, you know, doing some presentations and, and just uh, hanging out with some people and, and having fun. Uh, just having a good conversation, you know, hopefully. Oh, yeah. Well, I uh, appreciate you making the time to come on today. Uh, this has been a great conversation and hopefully I can get you back on the show in the future. Um, but before we go, I always like to leave with words of wisdom. So if there was any words of wisdom you could bestow on the listeners or other future inspiring uh, Sasquatch researchers, uh, what would it be? Words of wisdom. Um, geez. Well, you know, my uh, mantra here is... Uh, you know, that the, the business of Sasquatch is a business. It really is. And uh, in business, we don't listen to rumors and hearsay um, and that we need evidence. So be prepared when you go out researching. Make sure that you have plaster to pour casts if you find tracks. You know, keep an old jug of water and, and some plaster in your trunk or the better your truck. Make sure that you have, uh, you know, a pair of... Uh, rubber gloves in case you find a hair sample you don't want to contaminate you know make sure that you you do have a a camera and not just a cell phone but you know something that doesn't necessarily have to run on a charge um and take that stuff with you at least you know within uh a time frame that would be accessible uh to have so just just be prepared and bring solid evidence and not stories that's some great words of wisdom to live by and Honestly, that's that's the way to go about it is bring it back to the to the original ways of doing things and don't be so hooked on this technology. And I feel like that's the only way that we're really going to get anywhere with it is take the, all of that out out as a factor and really get down to the nitty gritty tracking and research, just like you and your father were doing. Yeah, I agree. I, I think if more people would just concentrate on, you know, improving their tracking skills and their hunting skills, you know, even if you're not carrying a gun to hunt one, you know, make sure that you have hunting skills and you have tracking skills um, and rely on that and then have the technology there with you as well if you need it or that you can use, but don't rely on it. Um, and, and I think that's, uh, you know, honestly, we, we might have some, we might have some better luck. So, but again, like, you know, like I said, that's, that's just an opinion. So, you know, I don't know anything. <laughs> hey, but sometimes that's a sign of uh, intelligence is to admit that we realistically know nothing. All we have is theories and that's where we're at. <laughs> that, that's what I keep telling myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, again, I appreciate you making the time to come on and uh, this has been a great conversation and anybody that hasn't already read your book, I highly recommend going and checking it out. All right. Thank I uh, had a good conversation. Thanks, Shane. And uh, hopefully we can do it again. If you guys enjoyed this episode, don't forget to share it with a friend. Also, don't forget to take an extra couple seconds to leave a rating or review for the show on iTunes or Spotify. Those are a couple ways to help the show to continue to grow. And the only way it's going to grow, of course, is with your guys' help. And if anybody wants to get a hold of me for any reason whatsoever, there's a couple different ways to do so. Number one is you guys can shoot me a message on Instagram, which is the social media that I'm the most active on. You guys can also email me at inquiriesofourrealitypodcast at outlook.com. Or you guys can go to the link tree, fill the submission form, and that will go directly to my email. Uh, just make sure that you guys check your spam or junk folders. Make sure nothing gets missed in the process because I do respond to every single email that I get. And everything that I mentioned, of course, all available under the link tree, which is L-A-N-K-T-R period E-E slash increase of our reality podcast. And with that, hope you guys enjoy the conversation and I'll catch you on the next one. Have a good night, everybody.
What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.